Welcome to the World War I History Podcast, produced by the MacArthur Memorial. We invite you to follow us on Twitter at MacArthur1880 or find the General Douglas MacArthur Memorial on Facebook. The following is an interview with Dr. Sanders Marble, Senior Historian at the U.S. Army Medical Department, Office of Medical History. Um, I have to start by saying that the views I'm giving today are mine, not the views of the Army or the Department of Defense or the United States government. Thanks again, Dr. Marble, for sitting down with us. Historically, the mass movement of armies and animals, combined with the poor sanitation of the battlefields and encampments, has led to outbreaks of infectious diseases. By 1917, however, the U.S. Army and Navy were riding a crest of medical advancement. They were experts in sanitation and had vaccines to prevent diseases like smallpox and typhoid. Yellow fever, cholera, and typhus were largely eradicated as mass killers. And yet in the fall of 1918, U.S. Army and Navy medical officers were faced with a deadly outbreak of the Spanish flu. What was Spanish flu, and is that even the correct term for it? Before World War I, disease had caused most deaths in wartime because they didn't have ways to prevent disease, and let alone the infections caused after septic surgery. World War I offered the chance to change that. They had a much better understanding of sanitation. They still had limited means of prophylaxis. They didn't have a lot of the vaccinations that we do now. For instance, you know, measles or mumps or vaccinations, they don't have those yet. They have smallpox, which is important because it's very lethal. And they have typhoid vaccine, which is, again, important because it, it's very easy to spread and quite lethal. They can prevent things like yellow fever and cholera through strict sanitation and stopping mosquitoes and things like that, keeping kitchens clean, water supplies clean. But there are lots of diseases they can't stop. But one disease will turn out to be a big killer in World War I, and that's the flu. It was called Spanish flu at the time, uh, apparently because Spain, being a neutral country in the war, did not censor reports of uh, flu outbreak. So the Germans are reading about flu in Spain and know that they've got flu, but they're not publishing it. And the British and French know that they've got flu, but they're not publishing it. They're reading about the Spanish. So it gets the name Spanish flu because the Spanish are admitting it. But it's not theirs. Uh, the flu did not originate in Spain. There's two schools of thought. Uh, one is that it was a, a hog flu, uh, a swine flu, uh, from western Kansas that spreads to the U.S. Army in central Kansas and then around the world. And another school of thought that the disease starts in Mongolia with some Chinese laborers that are mobilized to work in France. The laborers go from China by boat to Vancouver, British Columbia. Then they go by train across Canada, spreading the flu by boat again across the Atlantic. And then the disease is mutating and spreading uh, all along this route. I don't know. I'm not a virologist. And, and the virologists are arguing and trying to figure this out, and I don't know that they will ever figure it out. But uh, there was a flu, and it was not the Spanish flu, even though that's the name it's gotten. Now, it's, it's called a pandemic because pan means across, uh, and uh, demic is from demos, across the people. 
basically it's the term we use for a worldwide disease outbreak. An epidemic is simply a cluster of, of disease cases in a particular place. You can have an epidemic in a, in a single city because you've got a bunch of cases right there. If you have a bunch of cases in all the cities, then you have a pandemic. Uh, so uh, there are epidemic outbreaks of flu everywhere, that would, and the fact that it's everywhere makes it into the pandemic. When was it first identified and what routes did it take? Was it battlefield to home front or home front to battlefield? I know you said there's some kind of debate about actually where it started, but um, what, how, how was it being transmitted? Wherever it first starts, there's a, a, an outbreak in Europe in the summer, the, the early, uh, late spring and early summer of 1918 which isn't very lethal. It's very widespread. So units will have 50, 75, even 90% of the men get sick, but very few of them die. That virus apparently mutates on a, a ship going back to the United States because there's a ship that lands in Boston Harbor in August, and the, the people go up to Camp Devons, which is really a, a military installation in western Boston, and start dying like flies. Hundreds of people are, are in the hospital the first day, and then hundreds more, and, hundreds, and a few thousands within a week, uh, 5,000 in the hospital within a week. And that's in a hospital that's designed for 1,200 patients. So they're packed in, their patients are in cots on porches, they're using barracks. The Army scrambles a, a, a team of, of epidemiologists to go up and they're worried that, that this is the next black death, that, that it is killing people. Some people it's killing within 24 hours. Uh, some people get sick from the flu and then uh, because they don't have antibiotics at this point, they will die from pneumonia because they're in bed sick, they're lying down, they're coughing, they're not clearing their lungs often enough and they get uh, an opportunistic infection from pneumonia. But there's the, this non-lethal first wave in Europe, uh, which mutates into a lethal second wave that, that hits the U.S. Then it's very clear that the U.S. military and the U.S. war effort moves the, the virus around the country. And so you'll have a troop train from camp somewhere to, to fort somewhere else, uh, and then it arrives at camp, uh, fort somewhere else, and in a few days there are there are hundreds and thousands of flu, hundreds and then thousands of flu patients there. And then uh, there, there's the uh, worldwide, uh, a very lethal wave in the uh, latter months of 1918, and another uh, less lethal wave as the virus continues to mutate in 1919. And, and uh, people have argued that uh, President Wilson gets the flu during the Versailles treaty negotiations uh, and is incapacitated basically for uh, several weeks and people discuss what effect that may have had on, on the treaty negotiations. In her study of U.S. military and influenza in 1918-1919, Dr. Carol Byerly talks about the power of war to change the health environment. Why was the environment of World War I so conducive to the spread of this disease? In World War One, the soldiers are living outdoors uh, a great deal of the time in the in the ground, packed in, in into dugouts. So, since coughs and sneezes do spread diseases, they were they were packed in close. 
in the U.S., the Army was trying to mobilize as many men as possible, as quickly as possible. So they are overriding medical advice on how much space to give recruits, which again, by putting men closer together, you make it easier for the, the airborne spread of, of those uh, uh, viruses. But the, the, the troops in Europe are living outdoors, their nutrition is compromised, they're tired, their immune system is weakened. And, and uh, it's also interesting, mustard gas is an immune suppressant. Not a huge one, uh, although it is a, actually mustard gas was the first chemotherapeutic agent uh, f against uh, cancers because it does suppress the immune system in a, a useful way that way. Uh, but the doses are obviously not what will kill you. Uh, but mustard gas uh, reduces the, uh, suppresses the immune system. The trench environment also was very good for spreading diseases because it uh, the troops were tired, they didn't get enough sleep, they didn't get enough food, and, and it reduced their immune systems. So uh, that facilitated the spread of, of disease. What were the common symptoms and how did the disease typically progress? Symptoms are the same as flu now. Fever, uh, muscle fatigue, joint aches, uh, uh, upset stomach, it was a, a, a form of flu that was quite virulent, uh, so people were dying within a day. In some cases, their uh, fevers would go uh, to 102 or, or higher. Uh, the suspicion is that what was killing people was their body's reaction to the virus. The virus was certainly killing some, but some people were having uh, an overwhelming immune reaction to the virus, and uh, their bodies were producing so much mucus that it flooded their lungs. But others were having internal bleeding from responses to the virus. And the thing, another thing that was killing lots of them was the pneumonia uh, that they would get after being sick for a couple of days. And at least for the U.S., the pneumonia probably killed more than the influenza itself. So if we have another pandemic influenza, we should be able to avoid having the, the pneumonias kill people as well, because we, we have some pneumonia vaccines now. We have antibiotics, uh, which help. The antivirals will help as well. Uh, but they actually developed uh, pneumonia vaccines from scratch during the, the influenza pandemic in World War I, which uh, I don't think they're the, the vaccines we're still using for pneumonia, but probably we're using the, the great-grandchildren of those vaccines. Um, did this combination of influenza and pneumonia kill more soldiers than combat? For the U.S., yes. The, the, uh, the, the flu pandemic killed more soldiers than combat, but for the Europeans, no, because they were fighting for so much longer and had so many more battle casualties. Dr. Byerly also talks about the power of disease to influence the conduct of war. In 1918, the U.S. Army reported that among enlisted men, it had lost over 8 million workdays to the flu. By late 1918, 20 to 40% of the U.S. Army and Navy personnel were sick with influenza. How did this disease influence the actual conduct of the war? Well, it reduced the number of men fit to go into action. Uh, 
they might be in their unit on, on the rolls but uh, and, and up in the trenches, but too sick to leave the dugout, uh, charge the enemy. Uh, they also uh, have men who, who get sick and die in units that stopped back in the United States that stopped training because there are just too many men sick. And they're worried that getting the healthy ones out and will expose them to the virus that they don't have an identification for. They, the, the virus is too small for the microscopes of the day to identify, so they, they do not know what caused this. Of course, the Germans are sick with flu as well uh, at this, the same time, so probably 20 to 40 percent of the German troops facing the Americans are, are ineffective for combat. So it is uncertain and I think unprovable whether it helped the Allies win the war or uh, whether it hindered us winning the war. The U.S. military was segregated during World War I. During the crisis, though, did the need for trained medical personnel break down the segregation? Were black doctors and nurses allowed to care for white soldiers and vice versa? The Army was segregated by law, and there were black medical personnel uh, in the Army Medical Department. Their job was to treat black soldiers. They were assigned to units where the, the uh, personnel were black. Uh, so they were segregated that way. The hospitals were not segregated. Uh, so if a, a black soldier had a broken ankle, and he would be on the same ward as white soldiers with broken bones. Patients were organized by what was wrong with them. So there would be, say, a, a pulmonary ward, uh, a dermatology ward, uh, perhaps a psychiatry ward, not by color. The only exception is if there were enough patients with the same conditions, for instance, tuberculosis, which was prevalent then. Uh, if there's enough tuberculosis patients to fill a black ward and a white ward. Okay. So then they would segregate the wards. Because the Army's not segregating its hospitals, it doesn't want to have black medical personnel because they think whites will, will not want to get medical care from blacks. And having white personnel, medical personnel, gives them more flexibility because whites can care for whites or blacks, but blacks in their thinking could only care for blacks. So uh, there are blacks in the medical department, doctors, enlisted men, veterinarians, uh, some, uh, uh, there's a black medical supply officer, some people like th uh, that, but their job is to treat black patients. The flu does cause uh, a breakdown of this. They, the nurses uh, are actually more useful treating flu patients because doctors don't have anything really to do. There's no medicine to give you. All the doctor can do is say, yes, that's a flu patient, uh, and put them in, in a flu ward. And it's the nurses that take care of them. Uh, and the Army accepts uh, 18 uh, black nurses uh, for duty in the United States uh, um, during the war. They actually start uh, work after the fighting is over, uh, and of course they're working in the United States, but it, it is the first foot in the door for African-Americans uh, in, in the nurse corps. 
Why do you think we tend to think of the Spanish flu as a tragic coda to World War One, and not something that was actually a pretty big part of the war? I think because it overlaps the end of the war, uh, after the fighting is over, that certainly in the United States we, we uh, talk about it happening. And also for the United States, it's ha we're not seeing any of the fighting. So the war that that happens here is training and then people getting sick and dying from the flu, which overlaps the end of the war. Well, thank you, Dr. Marble, for your time. Thank you. Thank you for listening. If you have any questions, suggestions, or comments, please contact Amanda Williams at amanda.williams at norfolk.gov.